Welcome and thank you for joining me on Flourishing Bitter Bible Instruction. I'm your host, David Grills. This episode is part two of a conversation I'm having with Justin Cook from Advanced Christian Schools Association. As our conversation continues, we talk about how to honor all students, including those that don't believe as we do. We also talk about the challenge of student questions and how to uh, invite those questions and create support for student inquiry. I hope you enjoy the rest of our conversation. Let me let me uh, tell a brief story in regard to that, because I'm curious how you would respond to this. So I taught writer's craft, which obviously is not grade 12 Bible or, you know, um, but it is a, it's a narrative. It, it's a course around language and communication and and. You know, at the beginning, I would say to the students, I think it's the course's job to take care of the crafting. You know, it's like if this course is called the writer's craft, it's my job. My obligation is to really try and get us to, to deepen our ex- expertise around the craft. But you're the writer and your job is to decide what you want to say. My job is to help you say it really, really well. And so we would talk a lot about that. And I would, you know, I tried to create coherence around that in terms of really open-ended um, assignments or, or topics or projects that invite them to, to choose how they were going to speak in a certain genre or medium, right? And I had one student who was so against me in the beginning of the year. I was like, what is the deal? Like, why... I just want you to speak in your voice. He, and he, he was frustrated with me. And finally it came out that he said, he, he, I kindly, I finally kind of broke through and he said, look, I'm an atheist and you keep telling me you're going to let me speak. And I just don't think it's true. And now I'm, I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> now I'm starting to understand. And so I would assume that he was high exposure, low interest on your quadrants, right? Right. And I think one of the questions I have for you, David, is, so as you're hoping he moves to high interest, and I hope that too, is he allowed to speak authoritatively from his low interest? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I think he's like, I'm just going to wait you out. I'll try and play the game. I'll try and get my credit, but I'm low interest because I don't fit in this institution. I am not a Christian. And I guess my question for you is, how much is that low interest voice empowered to speak to the other group when they're not really where you want them to be ultimately? You know, how do you balance that with the low interest voice? Is he shut down? Uh Should he be shut down in the Bible classroom? How do you deal with that? I think part of it is, is disarming everyone, maybe removing the battlefield. So when I first started teaching Bible, the materials I was given, the, the, program I was meant to deliver created this sort of uh, series of conflicts, you know, uh, times where it's either you're in or you're out, you're in or you're out. But I just don't go there. Um, I don't mean that I I don't express the truth or I don't teach a a clear understanding of scripture, but it is Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. clear understanding, right? I I use the infinitive. uh, I invite kids of a variety of uh, positions along the journey to to be engaged and part of the disarming process is also in a an indirect way taking on the the assumptions mm-hmm. so uh, i have kids who are i have heard it all i'm not interested who leave the course more interested mm-hmm. uh, because 
what we learn about scripture is not what they've heard before. You know, the, they learn that there's muddiness and nuance, that there are things that are hard for me as a older person in the room anyway, to, um, to go through. And I'm still mm-hmm. you know, looking at it and struggling with certain ideas that come from the Bible. Mm-hmm. So I set myself up, up as a co-learner. I'm with them. So, you know, as we learn together is a phrase, us as, as reader learners of scripture, this is what we're doing. And I just kind of take away that opportunity for, for confrontation. Mm-hmm. So whenever someone who's a low interest person, and I'm thinking of a particular kid in, in the back of my head right now, wants to express themselves, it's in a welcoming environment of, yeah, we are all just figuring this out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And so what happens is the the conflict dissolves Mm. and there are kids on the periphery who have the same question. Mm. Right. Uh, So they're given permission to ask whatever question. It's not a statement of faith. It's just, Hey, I want to figure this out. And -hmm. if they are atheist or are unsure, that looks like every other flower in the garden, you know, then that's okay. Yeah, that's good. I think, so if I'm coming back to the student I have in mind, um, well, actually, let me preface it, and I'll come back to him in a second. I was really struck by, I don't know if you're familiar with the study by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, Hemorrhaging Faith. It came out, yeah. I don't know, maybe five five years ago now or more. Yeah, seven maybe. Seven, yeah. And if I if I recall it clearly enough, basically the youth are leaving the church because they see a disconnect between what the Bible is saying and what the community is doing. So they're experiencing a really rigid, non-relational community, even though the Bible is inviting us to love, right? Uh-huh. And and I think, I wonder if, so back to uh, the atheist student I'm referring to, I'm boxing him, obviously, with that term, <laughs> right? And um, I think he, I think he really wanted to read the community. He didn't want to read the Bible. He was trying to read and interpret what he felt was hypocrisy in a community. And I think, I don't, I think that's actually a really powerful thing that we could say simultaneously, we're going to read scripture, but we're going to read ourselves as a community of people. We're going to be honest about what we see as we, we think about reading ourselves as we read also the scripture. And I don't know, didn't, I mean, Jesus was doing this constantly in the gospel, right? Like he was reading scripture, you know, he, he would bring scripture, Old Testament scripture into his community experience, into this like mess of a moment where the mob was or whether the religious leader, and he was constantly reading the community and saying, you are, you are hypocrites, right? Like to me, there's, there's powerful alignment with what I'm saying is an atheist student and the gospel actually, like he's calling us to task this student, I think. Yeah. And that's risky, but it's really important because of course we're not going to align perfectly as a community. We're going to be just as messy and broken as David was, or, you know, Abraham was, as you talked earlier mm-hmm. as the Pharisees are. And so how do we bring that sense of letting the text read us and letting students read us not just us as teachers, but us as a group, as mm-hmm. a Christian community, whatever that means. I like that interplay of reading both the text and the community at the same time so that we can be honest about who we are and where we're going. Yeah, I think that's, that's important. I'm, uh, you reminded me of David Kinnaman's book, uh, You Lost Me. Right. Uh, 
which had similar outcomes. Uh, and uh, David Kinneman, he's uh, the president of the Barna Group. They've done a lot of research on this. And uh, there are a number of things that are in parallel with the hemorrhaging faith. Mm. One of them that I key in on in the same spirit that you're talking about, like, hey, we, we've got to live this out. We're part of a community. What, you know, what's happening mm. uh, in our community in response to Scripture or the God of Scripture and one of them is that uh, idea of being doubtless. So their experience in church is that everyone is nodding. Everyone believes without any doubt what is being said. And then we just don't talk about it. You know, if there is concern, we don't, we don't share it. Mm. Uh, and so what I try to do is, is give space for that in my classroom. Um, I want them to have an opportunity to express ideas that they struggle with before they're actually doubts. Mm. Distinction to be made there between questions and doubts. Questions that are left unexplored become doubts. And I don't push for answers. I really like the idea that that one of the things I learn as a Christian is to be okay with mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the other day, uh, a student was saying, you know, on my list of things to ask Jesus when I see him is, is this thing. And I said, yeah, I've got that list too. And we <laughs> right. all kind of laughed about whether we're actually going to care <laughs> in the moment. Right. And I, and I really want them to have that feeling of like, yeah, it's, this is, we're not meant to be a bunch of yes men or women in our, in our churches. We're, we're meant to be explorers. Mm. Uh, another analogy that I use talking about engaging the Bible is the Bible is more like a rec room than the front room. You know, in the rec room, you can throw things and wrestle and jump around. Nothing's going to get broken. There might be a new dent in the drywall that is still unfinished. But that's okay. Mm. But in the front room, you know, don't sit there. Don't touch this. Mm. Our curiosity, our interest in scripture is, is hushed into oblivion. Mm. Right? We, it just it goes away. And so, yeah, I want to honor all of that, whether it's being able to express questions uh, that can become doubts or, or even looking outside and say, yeah, but we're learning this about this character, but I wasn't told that. Mm. And my community is responding to what I was told Mm -hmm. that this character was, you know, squeaky clean and a hero. And I should be like this character, Mm -hmm. which is not the message of the Bible at all. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of a a conversation we had a long time ago where the most boring way to teach the Bible is as some kind of guidebook for life. Right. And so they're responding to communities that try to do that and and don't do it well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. It's a failed guidebook in that sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I think um, I get this a bit from Richard Rohr. So, you know, some people might, might, uh, I just want to acknowledge that publicly and let that be there. Um, But I think Rohr, and actually this, this is just, this is just good developmental psychology, I think as well. Like we often, like children need, they need, they, life needs to be organized. And so we use the tool of binaries to help them recognize the way life works, right? There is good and there is evil and they are binary. And, you know, even like lots of fairy tales will just be very explicit about there being good and evil. And then, uh, and I even, you know, I might, as a child myself, I might see my parents as like, can do no wrong, right? Like they are, they're kind of like the epitome and the embodiment of authority in a good way in that sense, right? But as we age, that binary starts to crumble a little bit. It doesn't, of course, we don't lose it completely. We pull it into our more mature, more complex life as we age. 
And we still recognize there's good and evil, but now we start to recognize, as Schultz and Nietzsche did, that it runs right through every human heart, right? That there's not good people and bad people only. Mm-hmm. We are all complexly good and evil right. and trying. And, and I think we may have to think about that in the scope of a Bible program, right? That at the beginning, our initial reading might be kind of more binary, right? That we recognize with kids that the Bible's kind of fairy tale like Esther is good. And Haman is evil, right? right? Like that's, that's true, right? Sure. Yeah. But then we realize that actually it's more complex than that too, right? right? Like, like Esther's a complicated person sure. in that sense, right? She, she works in a really complicated occupation. Uh, you know, I don't know. I just, I guess I'm trying to say that we can, we can add some layers of depth and complexity as we move deeper into our literacy or our, our understanding of both life, the community, but also the scripture. Yeah. To say that, um, you know, Esther is in a circumstance where uh, essentially she's in, in sexual slavery. Exactly. You can't do that in third grade, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, and I, I wonder what the balance is. I think the complexity isn't the only challenge. And I don't know that the solution is to simplify the text because I I don't know when kids start to see that complexity. Mm -hmm. If it's their circumstances, then suddenly their lives are more complex as, you know, their family breaks apart or something else. Uh, So they're ready for the complexity, but in their, Mm -hmm. their class, other kids aren't. I just wonder if there are other ways to approach the nuance in scripture without simplifying it. Maybe it's even looking at other stories that are, are less nuanced. Yeah, I think that's good. And, and again, I'm back to the ripples, right? That that one student might have a reading because of who she is and where she's at mm-hmm. or her family life, like you just shared, right? That the metaphor of father is going to be different based on our father. We, you know, that's kind of an obvious trope that we talk about. Sure. So, but I, you know, I, I guess in that sense, there's Jill's reading and there's Justin's reading and there's David's reading, and we can talk about the similarities of them, but we're allowed to talk about the differences too. And the text is still in the center. And maybe student A meeting student B's reading is the key moment of learning. Sure. And, and I would be thrilled by that. Right. Yeah. And I, I know um, uh, Heidi, Heidi Dean, who we mentioned earlier, in her seventh or eighth grade class, she's allowing unmitigated access to scripture. So she's, they're just going through it and dealing with the very difficult uh, passages. And it's not long before a kid who's paying attention will have questions about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, I invite that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when, if I'm going back through the experience of a kid, when it's too soon to invite that. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I read to them from a reader's Bible, which has no chapters or verses. So what they're hearing is the logical breaks in the literature. As I'm reading, I'm saying, you know, you should have questions. So I want to hear your questions. And it was, uh, you know, Christy Blumendahl here at HDVP who said to me, you need to stop asking who has a question and start asking, what is your question or what are your questions? And so I've been doing that for a couple of years now and yielding great results. Mm. And, you know, right in the first couple of, of readings, the kids have loads and loads of great questions that I don't expect that their elementary school teachers would be comfortable entertaining or anything. them asking. Yeah, which and I guess maybe I'm trying to honor that, that, mm-hmm. that developmentally, 
life needs to be organized for the child, but it's natural for us to start to deconstruct some of those organizations and own them in a little more complex level mm-hmm. that that's okay. I don't want to tie you down, but uh, looking at your experience, could we be doing more of that sooner than we are now? Oh, uh, for sure. I think so. I, I'm going to turn it in back into a question. Then I'll answer what you're asking. Mm-hmm. What's what, pedagogically, what did Christy help you realize? You went from asking who has a question to what is your question, right? Did I get that right? Correct. Why is, why is that change pedagogically an improvement? What improved? It lets the kids know that everybody should be thinking in a questionly, a questionly manner. So mm-hmm. we should be, at, be curious about this. So it invites everyone to do that. Uh, and there's an accountability piece. Mm-hmm. From my experience as a student, there were key kids in the class who would speak for me. They didn't know they were speaking for me, but I sat back while they spoke. Mm-hmm. So I, again, it, it just invites everybody in and there's a little bit of an accountability piece there. My student teacher added the write down your questions, mm-hmm. thinking that maybe some kids aren't remembering what they wanted to ask. Yeah. So my answer back to your original question is like, how old do you have to be to be able to ask a question? Right. <laughs> and- we know the answer to that, right? Like yeah. we know, we know that kids are more innately curious than we are as adults. Mm-hmm. And so why would we assume that the teacher of the primary age child is the only one who knows how to ask a question? Right. Of course, everybody knows how to ask a question. So I would love, I would love for us to in primary classrooms and they do. I'm not like we have kindergarten classrooms where there's a wonder wall. Like literally on the wall every day, they're writing down questions from the kids constantly. So let me be really clear. Primary teachers know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. They know how, but they're, that's, that's the spirit of what I think we're talking about. So, so here's my question. And when you said wonder wall, two things happened. I was thinking about music in the nineties. <laughs> I know. I was totally. The, and the other thing that happened is uh, I was remembering uh, a visit to an elementary school, uh, Knox Christian in Barrie or near Barrie. Uh, and they had a wonder wall and had this fantastic project around pursuing the questions on the wonder wall. So let's talk about Bible and a wonder wall. Mm-hmm. Does that happen? Do you see that? I can, I can picture, you know, having, a wonder wall about a story, a wonder wall mm. about science or just the world in general? Well, I think I want, so this again is a generalization and I, I want to be gentle with it because I'm going to frustrate people for whom this doesn't apply. But I think there is, there is an assumption in the system of education that kindergarten should be about play and inquiry. But when we get to grade one, it's time to learn how to read. It's time to learn, you know, now let's get serious about skill development. And I worry that there is a bit of a shift that happens that grade one needs to get serious about learning. Whereas kindergarten is not as serious about learning because it's Mm -hmm. play-based. And I would like there to be, I want there to be play and work constantly at happening, but I do want the primary grades to to have more of a, a gradual progression towards seri- more serious work. And I want it to maintain its sense of play. And again, I know that primary teachers do this. So I think a wonder wall is probably more commonly seen in a kindergarten class than in a grade one class. And maybe and maybe that's maybe that's too bad. In a grade 10 sense, we have a wonder wall. Nice. I'm not sure if you're familiar with question formation technique is a, a way of getting kids to ask better and better questions 
Mm. Uh, you mentioned earlier in this conversation about you know, sort of closed questions mm -hmm. as a single answer. So they often will start with their own closed questions, and then we work to making open questions that mm. requires some some discussion. And those questions are up on my wall right now. So we we have a you know fifteen twenty minutes where we do this QFT work of as a group developing questions. And then we hang those up. And as I continue the unit, if it started with a QFT, I'll talk about, well, this question is being answered here. And, and this question was answered yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you can do a QFT as a, a review process. You know, what questions should we ask about this topic if we were doing it again? Or if you were telling someone else about it, what should they be thinking about? Mm -hmm. It's kind of a wonder wall. Yeah, I like it. And I, I wonder, my experience as a grade 10 Bible teacher having kids who have high exposure and low interest, part of it is, is, you know, metaphorically speaking, there's no wonder wall between grade one and grade eight. Right. Yeah. Or grade nine. And you know, like I, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think it's an elementary only issue, I guess is what right. I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that correction. Yeah. So looking at the idea of assessment and pedagogy, is there something different that we should be doing in Bible in particular? Should we be doing something more of, of this or less of that than, than in other course areas? Yeah, interesting. I don't, my immediate thought is, no, we need to keep moving. Like, I, So I'm a huge fan of Parker Palmer's concept of the community of truth, right? So I'm seeing, I don't know if there's a transmission, the objectivist model where he's got circles. I don't know if you can picture this graph. It's a bit more complex than just a quadrant. So right. it's harder to visualize. <laughs> but in the objectivist myth of truth, the teacher's the expert and there's amateurs, the, the students are the, and all the information flows down, right? From expert to student, the transmission model, you know, the, the sure. Ferrari stuff that we've talked about. Yeah, in the banking past. model, I think is what Exactly, you exactly. Yeah. Yes. The more, the more humble and uh, passive the student, the better the student, right? And right. But Park, Parker Palmer says, no, it's a community of truth, right? Where the, the subject or whatever it is we're learning is in the center and everybody is a learner in a circle around that subject, but the arrows don't just go to the subject or just to the teacher. All the arrows go to the subject, but also to every other learner, right? Mm -hmm. So student C connected to student G is a learning relationship as well as student C's connection to the subject. So I guess I, what I'm trying to say is the relationality of the, of the group is as important as the relationship to the Bible. I, that's what I was alluding to earlier. I might learn something really significant and profound in my own reading of scripture, not from you, but from my classmate. And I think we can set up more opportunities for that to happen. Mm. And that's why I think the Wonder Wall is a really dynamic structure because my question might actually have a profound impact on another student. Right. But because I was allowed to ask my question, now I think that the learning that's occurring in the community of truth is so much more rich and deep and, and nuanced. Thank you, Justin. I appreciate your uh, amazing views on this and, and I'm challenged to, to do even more. Yeah, uh, my pleasure. And my hope is that we talk about community, right? That with the tyranny of time, this is so difficult, but my hope is that we can continue to deepen educators connections with each other and I 
by the sheer fact that you're doing a podcast, you you are passionate about that too. And so I'm hopeful that your work will create a community of truth, not just with kids, but with educators talking about our practice together and, you know, continuing to deepen what we're passionate about as Christian educators. So I'm really grateful for your work too, David. Thank you. In the next several episodes, I will be addressing how I teach the nuts and bolts of my course, the tools I use, how I handle various topics. I hope you'll join me.